0: Amen. You can take your seats this evening. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Whether you're in here or you are online. My name is, is Dave, a and I'm one of the pastors here in the Donald. And it's a real great privilege to get to come and share with you tonight. We're in our second week of this series, we're looking in the evening of what is God like. And tonight, as I said, we're gonna look at the title of Is God Good? Is God good? And we're going to journey through a number of different portions of Scripture in the Bible, because I believe the Bible has authority. Yeah, do we believe that? I believe that you want to hear the Bible's words more than you probably want to hear mine. And so if you want to open up to Psalm 136, we're going to use this as the base of our message tonight. And we'll share other Scripture as well. But Psalm 139 is going to be the base um, reference Scripture tonight. And this Psalm 136 is supposed to almost be like a, a song between two groups of people. And so we're going to read this out. first 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Turn to the person next to you and say, He is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Who made the great lights, his love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, his love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever. To him who had divided the Red Sea asunder, his love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it, his love endures forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures forever. Verse 16, to him who led his people through the wilderness, his love endures Forever. To him who struck down great kings, his love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, his love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance, his love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel, his love endures forever. He remembered us in our low estate. His love endures forever. And he freed us from our enemies. His love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his love endures forever. Is God good? That's a tricky question. That's a difficult and open question. And in order to grapple with this question of is God good, we in this room and together have to have a basic common understanding of the definition of good or goodness. You see, the dictionary defines good as, as something that is to be desired or approved of. But my question of that is, who by? Who does that? Who gets to choose whether it's desired or approved by? The definition in the dictionary of goodness is the quality of being morally good or virtuous. And again, based on who or based on what, who gets to decide that? You see, the very, our very definition of good is often based upon ourselves. It's only good to me if it benefits me. The definition of good is based upon our interpretation. And so our definition of good is what we want But you see, the Bible's definition of good is what he wants. And ultimately, this is a bit of a problem because we have about 7 billion people in the world. That means there's about 7 billion interpretations of the word good and goodness. And so we're gonna have a bit of a problem because our perspective of goodness is flawed. It's subjective. You see, what might be good to me might not be good to you. Let's say there is a scenario where you find yourself in the sea or in a lake drowning and you cried out to God for help. You asked God, I need you to save me and there's no one around. And let's say I see you in the lake or the sea and I jump in to save you. And in doing so that I, I bring you to the side and you get out. But in the midst of it all, I die. See to you, you would say, well, God is good. God answered my request. God answered my prayer. But to Kelsey or or my family, they might say, no, God isn't good. Because he didn't, he took someone away from me. He took something. So God isn't good. And so is God good? Well, it depends who you ask, isn't it? And in this passage that we read in Psalms 136, there is, we're going to look at this and see the narrative of the tension of this question of, is God good? But, and we see it throughout this passage, the tension of it. Because there's some things that we say, yes, that is good. God who spread out in verse, verse uh, 6, the earth upon the waters, who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and the stars to govern the night. Yeah, they are good things. But then look at verse 10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Is that, is that good? This, this makes reference to a passage found in Exodus 11 and 12. And I'm going to paraphrase this for the sake of time. But Exodus 11 and 12 tells the story of, of God using a man called Moses to bring out his chosen people, his chosen nation, the nation of Israel, who are in this moment slaves to the Egyptian, slaves to Pharaoh and the Egyptian empire. And God chooses this man, Moses, to be the one who's going to deliver them out. But Pharaoh is not having any of this. And Pharaoh says, no, his heart is hard. And he says, I am not letting your people go. So God steps in and God brings nine plagues up to this point. Nine plagues of of frogs and locusts and darkness and the river Nile turning to blood and many other things. And still Pharaoh is not letting his people go. So God says in chapter 11 of Exodus, he says, okay, I'm going to bring my 10th and final plague and it is the plague of the firstborn. I'm going to send an angel and he's going to come to every home in Egypt and take the life of the firstborn. But in order for God to protect his people, the Israelites, God says to him, I want you to take a lamb. I want you to take an animal, a lamb, and it needs to be spotless. And I want you to take it, eat a lamb per home and I want you to kill it. And I want you to cook it and eat it. But with its blood, I want you to paint the doorposts and the mantle of your door and with its blood. And when the angel comes by and sees the blood, he will pass over that house and you will be protected and you will be saved. And in Exodus 12, we read of how the angel of the Lord comes and sees on all of the Israelites the blood and he passes over. But for many of the others of, of Pharaoh in Egypt, there is a child taken, the firstborn is taken. In fact, Exodus 12, at the end of it, it says that from Pharaoh right down to the prisoner, there is a child taken from every home. Is God good? Well, that depends if you're asking the Israelites or if you're asking the Egyptians. And so why I'm saying this is because I'm trying to create tension that there is obviously a flaw in our definition of goodness This question of is God good to a human understanding is really difficult and is tough. And we limit goodness to our needs, to our desires and to our wants. Ultimately, friends, we don't get to decide what the definition of goodness is. Did you create yourself? Did you create the earth? Did you create the heavens? Did you create the waters and the stars? Did you create it? No, you and I are the created beings He is the creator, so he gets to decide what the definition of goodness is. We don't get to decide that. Yet if we wanted to come to a conclusion as to whether something is good or not, then we need a standard of what goodness is to compare to. We need a standard of what that is. You see, goodness isn't an inherited attribute or behavior of mankind. Sin and wickedness is what we have inherited that is the behavior and that is the attitude that we have inherited because of mankind. I told this story a couple of weeks ago at our midweek when I was speaking. You see, if any of you have children or had children or no children, you don't need to teach them to say, mine. You just let them grow up and they'll learn that themselves. You don't need to teach them that. What we do teach is we teach how to share. We teach the good things because by nature, we have inherited sin and wickedness but goodness is a learned behavior and it's a standard that's found in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 and 4 it says that God said let there be light and there was light and it says in verse 4 that God saw that the light was good. He saw it and he declared it and described this light as good. Now imagine some people who really don't like light Or there's certain animals that we have in our world that are really sensitive to light. Do you think they would declare and define the light as good? Maybe not. But God is the one who authored it and he is the one who gets to define what goodness is. God is good. It's part of his his inherent essence and nature. He is good. And so we learn goodness from him. And it's at these points, we pose the question of, is God good? We ask the question, well, if God is good, then why do bad things happen to good people? If God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? And it's often a question that we ask after the loss of a loved one. It's often the question asked when we or someone we know is facing suffering or a tragedy in life. And I want to put it out there and acknowledge that it is a legitimate question that it's okay for us to ask. It's okay for us to ask that. It's okay to ask, for us to wrestle with the tension. It doesn't make you any less of a Christian because you ask, is it like why do why does bad things happen to good people? It doesn't mean you have less faith because you ask the question. And if you're coming here expecting, well, just get to the answer, David. I don't know if I actually have an answer. I know someone who has the answers, God, and I can point you to that. But it's a tension that I wrestle with but do you know how I fix and wrestle with this question of why do bad things happen to good people? Because I believe that question has a sibling question that we also need to ask. I feel like when we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? We also need to ask the question, well, why do good things happen to bad people? And if you're like me, you jump onto that and think, well, that's true. Why do all them good things happen to all them bad people out there? There's so many bad people in the world and why why does good things happen to them? But maybe we need to take a look at ourselves and see ourselves as the bad people. Because we are bad and sinful and wicked. It is inherited from Adam. And so we need to ask the questions, why do good things happen to us? Why do good things happen to me? You see, we are so quick to ask where God is during our battles, but we rarely thank him during our blessings. And if we're going to look for the answer for why bad things happen to good people, then equally we need to ask the question, well, why do good things happen to bad people? Why has God been so good to us? With that loved person, why did we get so much time with that person? Why did we get that opportunity in the first place? What was God using that situation to do? A man called Marshall Shelley, who was the editor for Christianity Today, In 1991, on the 22nd of November, at 8.20pm, him and his wife gave birth to their son. At 8.22pm, two minutes later, the child passed away. The nurse standing over Mrs. Shelley holding the child said, Does the baby have a name? Mrs. Shelley said, Toby. It is short for a biblical name, Tobiah, which means God is good. A number of years later, Marshall, speaking at a conference, retelling this tragic story of his life, said at the end of his talk, summing this story up, he said this, Life is hard, but God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. Friends, I'm not trying to say that life is easy. And following Jesus means life so much easier. But life is hard. Could we acknowledge that? But we also acknowledge that in the midst of it, God is so, so good. And the difficulty of our lives doesn't change the fact that God is so, so good. Shelley was convinced that God has been so good to us. You see, if we looked at our lives, we would find things to be grateful and thankful for. Love, joy, hope, peace, grace, mercy, health, wealth. Breath, life, friends, family, church, opportunities, second chances, laughter, love. So many things we, God has been good to us with. And actually the Bible has another number of things to tell us about how God has been so good to us. A couple I wanna point out is, the first one is creation. The story we told in Genesis tells the story of creation and tells that God has been so good. Tells that God, everything that he created, after each day he announced and declared that it was good. We only, you and I get the privilege of living in this creation. We only need to look around this creation and see how good God has been, how beautiful and majestic and creative it is and how good God has been in the world that we live in. The other way we read in, this, in scripture of God's goodness is through the narrative of God's relationship with his nation, Israel. God's goodness is revealed in how he deals with Israel. Israel was this group of people that God had chose. God knew that he was gonna send his Messiah, Jesus Christ, through a bloodline, and he used the, the, the nation of Israel to do this. But Israel constantly was letting God down. They were pursuing and worshiping idols. They were practicing sexual immorality. They had hatred. They were grumbling. They, had, they lacked faith and they lacked trust in God. They were running from God. They were disobeying God. And yet time after time after time, God is so gracious to them. Time after time, he gives them second chances. He forgives them. He fights for them. He protects them. He provides for them. He delivers them. God's goodness is shown in his patience. Now, some of the skeptics among you in here or online might think, well, do you know what, David? That's really easy. You can pick passages out of the Bible to back up your points all day. That's easy to do. I know people who do that all the time. But what about the parts of the Old Testament? How can you say that God is good? when There's parts of the Old Testament when God is actually declaring that, he would, that, that Israel would destroy people groups. Well, what are you gonna say about that? Because that's the stuff that makes me question, is God really good? You say again, of course, in our infinite and human understanding of goodness, this doesn't make sense. And we must take into account the culture and context. Because we can't just make blanket statements about things. We have to understand the culture and the context. However, we do acknowledge the tension. And in this passage in Psalm 136, we see that tension we see constantly there are moments where God, we just declare, yeah, God, that is good. God, that is good. And then we read things in verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, but God, they're, they're, they're children. Or in verse 15, God swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, but God, they, they had families. Is that, is that good? Verse 17, to him who struck down great kings, verse 18, and killed many kings is This is tension guys And it's okay that there is tension In that And we need to see that We walk through that passage We see moments of goodness And moments where we're like "Mm, Is that good? You see God we see many times God particularly commanded Israel To wipe out the Canaanites And this is something that we can say Well how can a good God do that? How can a good God command The Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites? Well number one God created life. God is the author of life. He gives life and He takes away life. It is His choice. We don't get to make that call. Number two, this group of the Canaanites were so saturated in sin. They were perverted by sin. And so, if you and I only could understand how much God hated sin, then we could understand that. But we don't get it. We don't get it because we enjoy dancing with sin. And if we could only understand how much God hated sin and how he had to wipe out this generation because of the perversion of sin in them. The third lesson we can learn is also that God will do anything to protect his people. He will do anything. You read that in Psalm 136. He will do anything to protect his people because God is deeply committed to protecting his people. He is deeply committed in protecting the bloodline of Jesus for me, I look at this and see it's so comforting that God will do anything to protect his people. And again, you might ask the question, well, what about, what about the, the children? How could a good God wipe out children? Well, I could ask you the question, and we could argue, is it better for them to grow up in such a perverted culture? Or is it better that God would order their death so that he could take them to be with him? Because death is not the end, church. Death is not the end. James 1:16 and 17 says, as, "Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights." You see, only good things come from God. Nothing from God is bad. So the destruction of Pharaoh and the Egyptians and then the Canaanites shows God's goodness. It shows that he is deeply committed to his people. And our perspective, you and I's perspective of goodness is this. Well, can we not just make everyone happy? Friends, this is not heaven. We are not at heaven. Not everyone can be happy. We live in a sinful, broken, selfish world. But God is deeply committed to protecting his people. And so goodness is defined by God. We don't get to redefine it. And ultimately at the crux of this is there's this issue of timing because a lot of good is dependent upon timing. And so we can endure suffering and trials here on earth because we read in Revelation 21.4 that it's at a point in time God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain for the old order of things has passed away. God ultimately in, is good in the light of eternity you and I sum, sum it up into, what do we get? Roughly, if we're doing well, 80 years here on earth. Some are going stronger than that. But we get roughly 80 years. And we define goodness that if God has been good in those 80 years, then great, God's good. But you compare those 80 years to the light of eternity, where he will wipe away every tear. God ultimately is so, so good to us. Now, interestingly enough, this poses another question that we're going to come to at, for the end, coming to the end of tonight's message. Because this talks about eternal life. And we ask the question well, how can a good God send people to hell? Surely not. Surely if his goodness will prevail at the end and, and people won't be sent to hell forever. But we need to remember that God's gift of uniqueness to mankind is their ability to make free will decisions. God won't force you to love him, God won't force you to choose him. We aren't forced to do that. However, sin has entered the world and we all are sinful. And that sin's penalty is death. Punishable by death. So the direction of our lives at the minute, the direction of our lives before Jesus came into the world, sorry, was that we would be spending forever, tormented in hell. But God sends Jesus to save us from that death. However, we have to make a choice. He's not going to force you to believe in Jesus. He's not going to force you To take that, it is your choice. And in fact, listen to 2 Peter 3 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is ultimately saying, I'm not coming back just yet. I could, but I'm not, because I'm giving you an opportunity to trust me. I'm giving you some an opportunity. And so maybe you're watching online or you're in here tonight, you're not a follower of Jesus. God is giving you tonight as an opportunity to get right with him. God is giving you this opportunity to say, I could come back, but I'm not, because I'm giving you another opportunity. But ultimately, whatever decision you made to accept or reject him, he is saying, have it your way. One author writes it this way. He says, God allows you to turn your back on him if you prefer to be the captain of your own ship. You may not want to acknowledge a higher authority to whom you must answer. And you may not want to admit that you've done, you don't have, to, you don't have your act together. But he allows you to make that choice. But jump forward with me to judgment there. Jump forward to me. We're a time where we will give an account to God for what we did with our lives. And so you've sat in a room, you've heard the gospel of Jesus paying the price for your life and sins. And you know what? You've chosen to reject it. You've chose to be the captain of your ship. You've made that free will choice. And imagine if God didn't allow you to gain the consequences of your choice. Would, would he be a good God? Or would he be a liar? He would be a liar. Because he has said, no, yeah, you make, you have it your way. You do whatever you want. You accept the, the consequences of your choice. And then when we get to attorney, he says, nope, you're actually all come on me. It may seem good to us, but God is ultimately then A liar. Because he did not give us the consequences of our choice. You chose to reject God. That's so unfair and unjust that then he would make your decision for you. And it's interesting because you know who suffers more in that situation? You, your God, it's God. God wants you to be with him forever, but you would choose to reject him and his goodness causes him to suffer. His goodness causes him to suffer. And But there is hope. Let me tell you of the ultimate revelation of God's goodness. God's ultimate revelation of his goodness is in the person and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says, No eye has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Colossians 1.15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Even Jesus' coming signifies God's goodness. John 3:16. A lot of us will know that verse well. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved you that He was so good to you that He gave us the greatest gift. Romans 5:8. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. That so while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated His goodness and love by sending Jesus. But some of the skeptics may say, but, but, but David, Jesus coming into the world didn't take away our suffering. It didn't end our suffering. How can God's plan be good if we still live in suffering? Well, we often assume that goodness is the absence of suffering. But joy isn't in the absence of suffering, but in the presence of God. God's goodness is found in himself becoming man and dwelling amongst us in our suffering. Hebrews 4 15 and 16, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive and find grace to help us in our time of need. Another author writes, the greatest gift God can give us is more of himself, and he's good however he chooses to deliver that gift. So sometimes the suffering that we go through, God uses the suffering to point us back to him so that he can be with us in the midst of our suffering. God might be trying to use the trial in your life to draw you closer to him. But as the band come and join me, God's ultimate act of goodness was found in his act on the cross just outside the city of Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God's ultimate revelation for his goodness to us was to make a way to eternal life with him through the salvation of his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. God placed the suffering sins of the world on the body of Jesus Christ. So we have an opportunity if we choose it to become the righteousness of God. As I come to a close here, I want to read an an, an excerpt from a book called When God Weeps, Why Our Sufferings Matter to the Almighty. And this tells a, a story, tells a narrative or a different perspective of the cross, of Jesus about to be hung on the cross. And listen to these words. It says, the face that Moses had begged to see, the face that he was forbidden to see, "'was slapped bloody. "'The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion "'now twisted around his brow. "'On your back with you, "'one raises a mallet to sink the spike, "'but the soldier's heart must continue pumping "'as he readies the prisoner's wrist. "'Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, "'for no man has the power to do this on his own. "'Who supplies breath to the lungs?' And who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only by the sun do all things hold together. The victim wills that the soldier live on. He grants the warrior's continued existence. And the man swings. And as he swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve on the human forearm. The sensations that it would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerves perform exquisitely. Up you go. They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day an unearthly foul odour began to waft. Not around his nose, but around his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father. He must face his father like this. And from heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed. He shakes his mane and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on the cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so, never even felt the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The sun does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen and gossiped. You've murdered, you've envied, you've hated and you've lied. You have cursed and robbed, you've overspent, you've overeaten. You've fornicated, you've disobeyed, you've embezzled, and you've blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, and the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so plagued the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held a razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You, who moles young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families and acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing exhortation, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You've burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics. You've founded false religions. You've traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate and loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? And of course the son is innocent in his blamelessness itself. The father knows this, but the divine power have an agreement and the unthinkable must now take place. For Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure. The mirror image of himself sinks drowning into raw liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears and the sun stirs up at the one who cannot, the one who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity had planned it. The sun had endured it. The Spirit had enabled him. The Father rejected the Son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The Father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. This right here is the definition of goodness. No other religion exists where the God, the Creator, comes down and gives his life as a sacrifice for his creation. right now I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and the worship team are going to sing a song that many of you will be familiar with but I want you to reflect on these words this song how deep the Father's love I want you to reflect on these words in here online, Christian or non-Christian how good God has been to us all how good he has been to every one of us